That's why sequence is such an important part of growth IQ. It's because timing is everything. And sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. And if you just are always on 100 miles an hour and you're just never pulling in for a pit stop, <laughs> eventually the car will break down. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. Our quote for today is by novelist Ellen Glasgow, and it is, all change is not growth as all movement is not forward. Our guest today, Tiffany Bova, understands the sediment quite well. She's the global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce, as well as the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business. Tiffany, welcome. It's so great to have you on Outperform. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So in addition to your role at Salesforce, you, I know you've led large revenue producing divisions at businesses ranging from startup to Fortune 500, and you've also traveled the world helping companies solve a lot of their vexing and growth challenges. I'm curious, what are some of the growth pitfalls you see companies, especially growth companies, repeating and falling into? Oh, that's such a good way to start. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'd say this, it's, it's not, well... The first thing is the one thing is it's never one thing. Yeah. <laughs> because now I'm going to answer it multiple ways, right? Because the first is that people tend to try to find this one fix. If we right. just deploy this technology or we just hire more salespeople or we just spend more marketing dollars or we just launch one more product, right? That that's going to fix whatever they have in their business that's making them feel either one, that they're starting to see softness in how easy it is to grow or at the growth rate they have been seeing historically is not as uh, high as it has been. Or two, they're in a full-blown growth stall, which is where you know my definition of it is sort of two to four quarters of flat to no growth. And they want the one thing that's going to either get them back on track to the growth they were seeing previously, or two, get themselves out of a growth stall. So I'm always you know, the first to say that it's not one thing. The second thing I'd say is that many companies believe if they are growing and kind of the, the uh, Bill Gates quote, uh, and I'm going to ruin it, but the net of it really was is success is the worst teacher, right? Because unfortunately, you feel like, well, we've always been growing, like we don't have a sales problem or a growth problem or a marketing problem, right? We don't have a problem. We need to then course correct. And that's the worst thing they can do because ultimately when you're in growth, you have this ability that potentially your competitors do not because they're feeling a softness and maybe they're not growing. So when growing, that's the opportunity to take that profitability that you're enjoying and reinvest it in the business for where you think you're going to need growth two to three years from now. But I hear lots of companies go, oh, you know, we've got 50 quarters of straight growth. Like we don't have a growth problem. And that can sometimes set them up for being blindsided by, we just didn't expect that was going to happen, whatever that is. The third thing is we tend to turn the same dials when looking for growth, 
I mentioned them a, a minute ago. One, you know, kind of hire more salespeople because with every head, we get another million in revenue. Takes them, you know, six months to ramp up or three months to ramp up or two months to ramp up. So if we hire five people, two months from now, we'll have five million more in revenue. So let's just hire more heads because we can get more revenue that way. Two, we're just going to spend more marketing dollars because if we spend more marketing dollars, more leads will come in. If more leads come in, our salespeople or whatever engine, our e-commerce engine online, whatever it is that is selling will sell more. Or unfortunately, third, we're going to cut costs to growth. And my book actually does not cover the third <laughs> yeah. it's at all or M&A, right? So I guess the yeah. fourth would be we're going to go and acquire growth. So those last two, I don't really talk about. But the first two, those dials are not as effective as they used to be. Historically, growth is just getting harder. Yeah. And, you know, I'm curious in our, you know, when people talk about growth, I think you have growth or private equity growth, and you have this whole Silicon Valley lens that tends to jade a lot of how people think about, you know, grow, baby, grow. Can you talk a little bit about what you see the difference between high growth and sustainable growth? And I know that probably was woven into a bunch of the examples you used in your, in your book, but I, I think it's an important topic that doesn't get discussed enough. In what way? Uh, like in terms of, uh, you know, you can grow, as you said, there are a lot of levers to pull to get kind of high growth, but a lot, a lot of, you see a high, you know, companies three, 400% and then have that complete stall that you're talking about, because a lot of it's probably fueled by sales and marketing, but really more, what, you know, what is sustainable growth and not, not being addicted to growth itself? Yeah, well, I, I think you nailed it, right? I think it's this, we just don't have a problem. But it's all about preparation for the problem. And if you're always in this mode of, we don't have one, you're never preparing for when one shows up, or you're never even anticipating or looking for the early signs, kind of like the canary in the coal mine, that there may be a problem two to three quarters from now. Or all of a sudden, you know, gosh, lately in customer service, we've been hearing this complaint a lot. Capturing that and correcting it in an offensive way is very different than we have a churn problem, we're losing customers and we don't know why. And now you're in defense mode. And so that's why I say, if you're growing and for the companies that are growing, there's a stat out there that's like 80% of companies at some point in their history will hit a growth stall. It's, you know what I'm saying? Where like all of a sudden, whatever happened, that, you know, manufacturing was impacted because of some natural disaster or, you know, a regulation change that it took you a moment to course correct, or, you know, your funding or the business was your largest client has gone out of business, you know, whatever it is, right? Where all of a sudden it's some black swan event or something you did not anticipate. 80% of businesses are going to hit some kind of stall in growth. And only a very small percentage of them ever make their way out of that stall. And a very small percentage of businesses are larger than 5 million. So we always talk kind of about the Fortune 500, but yeah. you know, the majority of businesses around the globe are smaller than 5 million. So the challenge is that any kind of big growth stall or something that impacts business is so difficult for small businesses to recover from because they just don't have the capital and the assets to invest in anything risky because they have to make payroll. And so they're not able to make those investments. That's why paying attention to what's happening in your customers when you are growing to make sure you just stay a quarter or two ahead of where your business is, where your customers are, allows you to stay ahead of 
hopefully anything that shows up in that kind of black swan category, right? Where, holy moly, we just never thought this was going to happen, whatever this is. It is really a discipline, but I don't want to blow past the fact that for all intent and purposes, and one of the things that I, it's sort of a term that I coined many years ago called the seller's dilemma, which is absolutely a playoff of Clayton Christensen's innovator's dilemma is anybody who's responsible for driving revenue, how do you transform the business, look for new ways to grow, try and fail in new businesses or new product launches, while at the same time, you're responsible for hitting revenue. It's kind of like you know, changing the tires on a race car when it's going around the track. Yeah. Very difficult to do. It takes a very special kind of leader, a very special kind of organization. And so I don't say it lightly that doing what I've just described is easy. It is not, but you have to be committed to it. And so even if you have somebody on your team who is paying attention to what's happening in the business so that you can run the business today, and then the two of you can go after those plan Bs and test them in anticipation for the fact that 80% of the time, people will hit a growth stall. Well, that that is very common of the sort of visionary operator pairing, right? Where the operator needs to make sure the trains are running and the visionary is trying to to look around the the corner and, and see what comes next. Yeah. And, and it, it requires, you know, from just from a pure time management, you know, if you spend all day in meetings, then you have no time to actually do the work you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> but if you spend part of your time in meetings and then you're doing work out of the meetings, you're also not spending any time on thinking. And to me, growth is a thinking game. It's flat out a thinking game. It's how do you outthink? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, actually, that's a perfect segue. So you've recently released your first book, Growth IQ, which has been lauded by Seth Godin, Tom Peters, Ariana Huffington, Dan Pink, among many others. I'm curious, how'd you come up with a concept and how do you define Growth IQ? Yeah, the concept kind of organically showed itself to me. You know, I had had the opportunity and really pleasure of of working at Gartner for a decade as a research fellow. And my area of coverage was sales transformation, go-to-market models, indirect selling. Uh, and then towards the middle of that decade, it got more into the impact of digital and the way companies sell and engage with customers. And then really at the end, really started talking about experience being the new product and what does that mean in a selling environment and this new modern seller that was very social and relationship-based, yet so much technology coming their way. There's just kind of a lot of moving parts. And it was pretty common. I mean, where why I started with the one thing is it's never one thing is I would sit in meetings with clients and it literally would be like, we need to hit our numbers this quarter, Tiffany. What can we do? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like 30 days into the quarter. I'm like, I'm not sure what I can tell you to do that's going to have impact in 60 days outside of spending more marketing money. Because even if you hired more salespeople, you can't ramp them that fast. Right. Right. They might have a nominal impact in quarter, but the only thing you possibly could do would be to send more leads, find, uncover more business opportunities for your existing sellers. And so they're like, great, we'll just drive more leads. And then they get, and it became this habit, which is why I said you hire more salespeople, spend more marketing money, cut costs. Like, you know, that became the hamster wheel. And I knew that there had to be a better way. And so I started to see those companies that were growing and growing consistently had some common patterns within them. And it was this combination of things that they were doing, but more importantly, it was the sequence in which they were doing it. And that became the foundation for Growth IQ. And then I said, well, I don't want to try to launch this new 
concept, like, you know, the four P's, it's now going to be the eight R's. Like, you know, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. What I did was I said, what are tried and true ways companies have grown for the last hundred years? I want to modernize that knowing now we have social, mobile, cloud, big data, AI, IoT, you know what I mean? Like we have all these things that we didn't have with 20th century businesses outside of sort of the, you know, the 90s kind of, you know, maybe a little bit. I mean, I was doing e-commerce sites in late 97, 98, 99. So it was there, but very small, right? It was a very small sort of segment of the market, if you will. So the 20th century businesses were built for heavily asset intensive, right? We're going to go build data centers and we're going to R&D all this stuff where the 21st century is like, yeah, we don't own buildings. <laughs> we're just going to do WeWork. Like we don't own cars. We're just going to do Uber. Like we don't own manufacturing plants. We're going to do Kylie Cosmetics and build a billion dollar business in less than three years where it took L'Oreal, you know, 50 years. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. at the end of the day, the, it just was not the same there were not the same chess pieces on the chessboard when it came to growth. So I came up with the 10 as a modernization of things people knew. So first couple of them were really a homage to the Ansoft matrix, sell more to your existing customers, sell different things to new customers, you know, that everyone was familiar with. And you'll still see case studies today about how big brands are using the Ansoft matrix. That was written in 1957. We're in 2018. So was it still applicable? Yes. But the way we used to do customer base penetration in catalogs, i.e. Sears Robux catalog, right, or mailers, or, you know, knocking door to door, you know, or the car salesman, like, you can sell more to your base, but using technology, you can do that at scale, much more personalized, much more quick. In multiple channels, simultaneously, you can test, turn stuff on, turn stuff off. That's a different game. So... Growth IQ was really a modernization of things people have been doing. One, which were the 10 growth paths. Uh, well, really nine, the 10th doesn't fit into that category because that was one that I think has just raised uh, new awareness, which we can talk about. But then the other two is this really combination and sequence. And that was the secret sauce to me. The 10 were interesting because it gave them something, the reader... Uh, and gives me something that's digestible. 10 is manageable. 10 is something people can understand. But combination and sequence uh, and context were really the crux of the framework. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. 
Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, and and the case studies are, are are really interesting in terms of looking at both the sequencing and what people did. And I'd love to to dive into a few of those that I want to get a little more of your feedback on. And the first one was was churn, I think, which was path seven. And because again, if you think about particularly in the Silicon Valley growth world, and so this was this one was Blue Apron. I sort of remember seeing it at the time. And, and particularly in a business where the economics weren't that great, but um, you really went into this. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, what, what does it look like when, you know, they're pouring in the front door and just as fast uh, out the back door? And, and is this sort of the Silicon Valley giving people marketing dollars trap or how, how do companies, that just seems to me like the perfect example of, of addicted to growth for growth's sake and not because the customer's taking you there. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things on, on that when you unpack it. You know, the first is, is that churn, as I said a few minutes ago, tends to be viewed as a defensive strategy. Something's wrong, we have to fix it. And I tried to flip that on its head and say, no, if we can use this as an offensive strategy to fix whatever it is, or to understand whatever it is, to never have churn, those are two very different things. And the only way you could do the latter is to really be looking at the data through the lens of analytics and, and intelligence to tell you patterns and to start to see things that are going on so that you could say, hey, you know, we've really noticed that customers that we acquire from this particular source are churning three times faster than everybody else. So either we need to not acquire customers from that source anymore, right? Because we're spending an acquisition cost, we're never paying ourselves back and the lifetime value is very short. So we either need to kill that or we need to figure out why they're churning. But if you just kind of say, well, our churn rate is 3.2 or 5 point or 10, point, whatever it is. And you don't know what I just like a, as an example, that is an offensive strategy of getting ahead of it. So if you just completely eliminated that source of new customer acquisition, you should see positive result on your churn rate, right? You can reallocate those dollars to whichever channel is giving you better lifetime value and allowing you to pay back the acquisition costs much more quickly. So wouldn't you do that? Instead of focusing on, well, they're churning, like, let's just constantly figure out, like, well, let's just save those customers and no one's going, hey, did anybody realize it was all from the same source? Like, we're saving these customers and we're doing it by saying, we'll give you three months free. So now you're actually costing the company more money. They're nowhere near profitability, like, you know, profitable customers. So that's a very different approach to it. And I would agree with you that this tends to be a recurring revenue conversation in the as a service model. So software as a service, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, whatever, as a service. 
and really born out of the cellular industry. There are so many things that are recurring revenue, but one of the things I pulled out in that chapter is it doesn't have to be a recurring revenue business. Like I always buy coffee and donuts on Sunday at John's place on the corner. And so four times a month, you know, every Sunday I give them 20 bucks, basically. Yeah. Well, now I don't go anymore. So it wasn't a recurring revenue business, but now he's lost $20. Now, why don't I go anymore? Well, it's not clean anymore, or like the people behind the counter aren't very friendly, or the coffee isn't good anymore. So now I've gone over to Bob's and I'm giving him 20 bucks. And so there are ways in which you can actually lose repeat business from loyal customers, even if you don't have a recurring revenue model. And so you don't want to do that. You know, the first coffee house selling donuts, you know, you don't want to do that because ultimately I would say, how do I get me as a customer to not only spend 20 on Sundays, but to come and show up on Wednesdays and buy donuts for my staff meeting? Right. Right. So in that case, it gets a lot more difficult. Like I'll be really honest here. You get a lot more difficult to track that example I just gave because you don't know who I am. There's no loyalty program. Like I walk in, I don't walk in. You don't know. There's no way to capture that. So I get that that's a little bit more difficult, but then what does that say? Should you have a loyalty card? Should you think about having an app? You know, should you do something that allows you to get that connection with customers so you can know what was going on in the business? Or, or what happens when the when the problem is fundamentally the product itself or a demographic to whom the product is not a good fit? I mean, I'll I'll give you the example. My example with Blue Apron is, you know, I have three kids and we ordered it when the whole meal thing was coming out and it sounded like great. It was going to save us all this time. And we get these kits and it was like, I make four hamburgers that use seven pans and it it actually was more work. Like <laughs> it was just, it was too fancy for a weekday meal for a family. So that had nothing to problem to do with the quality of the product overall. However, it was just not the right demographic to be solving. And I think that is an important point too. Like sometimes you're just maybe, are you turning on the gas when the product's not right or the product market fits not right? Well, so let's go back to what I was just saying. Yeah, and I don't know the answer to this, so I'm just yeah. making a big swag <laughs> statement. But let's just say that that particular you know supplier, which obviously I cover in the book, but let's just say that they realized you know when someone buys meals from us and it's a serving for four, right? Because you have to say how many people they're going to eat, right? Because they need to give you enough food that they can say this is probably a family, and we've noticed families are churning more than a single person. Yeah. So maybe we shouldn't try to be acquiring families. I'm totally making this up, right? But as an example. And so ultimately, that's what I mean by, well, you ended up churning out. So they spent X amount of dollars to acquire you. They had you for Y amount of months. They probably gave you, you know, Z amount of free foods or discounts in the first couple of orders. They spent all this time and then you're just poof, you're gone. And so then they may send you an email and say, hey, we really want you back. We'll give you a week free. So now they've invested another hundred bucks in trying to get you back. (laughs) Rather than asking why I left, right? rather than asking why you left. And so that's what I mean by, that's a great example. And in that particular case, they were used as the churn example. And so, you know, ultimately there was all kinds of things. They overstretched the business itself and their people and the infrastructure and the supply chain. And so quality was impacted, timing was impacted, all kinds were impacted. And so people were churning because they were scaling too quickly. And so that's why sequence is such an important part of growth IQ, it's because timing is everything. And sometimes you have to slow down to speed up 
And if you just are always on 100 miles an hour and you're just never pulling in for a pit stop, eventually the car will break down. Yeah, well, the, yeah, that's a true lesson. You know, now, now flipping it now, diving into another one. I mean, one of my favorite stories is, and I, I know a lot about it, but there was a piece of it I did not know, which you illuminated, is Netflix and how they, you know, very few companies have been able to do what they did, which was put their own DVD business out of business, uh, but not, as we'll get to, and pivot, and then see that the change again was going to be to original content and decide to really repivot their their business. But, you know, one of the things that, that you noted in the book, and I think you mentioned this earlier, really goes to that about how do you sort of invest and stay the course at the same time was that they still have X millions of DVD subscribers and it is the most profitable yep. <laughs> division. It is actually yep. funding these growth channels. You don't, so you don't shut it down. Yes. You just stop putting all the sales and marketing to it, which puts 25 points of margin on it. I, that was a really interesting piece of the story that I didn't know. Yeah. And I use that example a lot. And that's a great example around sequence because, and I don't know if I got deep enough into this in the book, just because of the limitations of how much time I had, right? And how much space I had. But ultimately, Blockbuster had already gone down the streaming angle with Enron. And why didn't it work? So there was a couple reasons. And I'm, you know, once again, I'm making look back at, yeah. you know, assumptions here. But ultimately, uh, it, the timing was wrong. Not everyone had a smartphone in their hand. Wi-Fi was not everywhere. Bandwidth was not inexpensive and bandwidth was not everywhere, right? And so the challenge you had is that people might have wanted it, but couldn't have accessed it. It wasn't available to everybody the way I can drive to a Blockbuster was. And so what Blockbuster could have done was instead of go to streaming was we'll just get it to the mail delivery because one of the biggest things for them with the pain point was you show up to a Blockbuster and they don't have the movie you want or two, you have it for a day or two, and then it sits in the back of your car and you end up spending more on the late fees than you could have just bought the movie. And then you have to go out of your way, right? So they could have done it in saying, look, we know we already have our customers. Like, why don't we just mail it? Yeah. And they never did that pivot. And so had Netflix in the US just started at streaming, it wouldn't have probably survived because of what I just said. We weren't streaming to phones and iPads and bandwidth wasn't ubiquitous and Wi-Fi wasn't free at every coffee shop. You know what I mean? Like people just could, and on on airplanes, I mean, you were streaming stuff on airplanes at this point. It's a totally different game. So it was a mistake going back to the thinking and that's a sequence and a timing thing. They had to wait for the market. So when the market started to make that pivot, they started offering up streaming right? And changing the model. And, and to your point, right, there's still 700, 800,000 people that do mail order and it's the most profitable part of their business, one of the most profitable part of their business. And it's fueling their new growth path, which is original content. Yeah. If you asked a hundred people, they would get that wrong. <laughs> what, what is the most profitable yes. part? That, and that was eye-opening for me, right? I think it's the BCG or it's a two by two matrix. You know, You use the cash cow to fund the, the growth star. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I that's why I say growth is a thinking game. Growth is a thinking game. And the challenge people have is in many cases they're either very product centric or customer centric and if you're very product centric, all you're thinking about is what you're making. And we do two things. We make stuff, we sell stuff. What what else are we doing? Yeah. Well, in the customer centric business, Right, it's hold on a second. What's the context in the market? Who's our customer? Let's go back to this example: Netflix or Blue Apron or whomever. Right? Who's our customer? Or Kylie Jenner? Who's our customer? Teenage girl, just starting her journey of wearing makeup. 
trying to learn how to wear makeup, doesn't know how to wear makeup. So I'm not just going to ship the makeup. I'm going to wrap it with all these videos of how to's across the channels of where they go and where they consume things. And I'm going to take them on this grow up to be a woman journey with me through the good and the bad. And I'm not going to then launch something that is for a category of people that is not my target audience or, you know, in all the other examples that I've given. And so I think that that's why I say it's thinking and we just don't take enough time to pause and think. Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcasts. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. One of the other, the last two things you talked about were really interesting because I think we see a lot of this more, particularly when solving big problems. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between partnership and co-optition and when you would lean towards one or the other? Yeah. So partnerships to me, the, the great news about this is, you know, this is where I really sort of cut my teeth and in uh, being a sales leader was on the indirect side, selling with and through partners, especially on the technology side. And so partnerships are near and dear to me. So as competition has gotten uh, more heightened, very rare do you see a company able to solve something all on their own. It used to be, oh, well, we have outsourcers. So that was a form of partnership, right? Or 
You may have some venture money. Well, that's a kind of partnership or franchise models. Well, that's a partnership and, you know, 70%, 80% of McDonald's are franchise owned. So that's a kind of partnership. And then you may have partnerships where it's sell through. You know, you can't buy Cisco products on Cisco.com. It's not possible. And Cisco is in the networking company, not the yeah. food company, or even the food company. You can't buy Heinz ketchup on Heinz.com either. Yeah. Like you have to buy it from a third party. So partnerships are really important, especially in the supply chain, sell with, sell through, uh, as well in sales and marketing and support. But coopetition is uh, really the best story in tech was Wintel. You know, and, and it was you know, putting Windows uh, and Intel together. But for this generation, I like to say kind of the USB is probably a great example yeah. that regardless of what airplane you're on, what car you're in, what laptop you use, what desktop you use, what television you use, the USB works. Yeah. It works. Dell had to work with HP, who had to work with Lenovo, had to work with LG, had to work with Samsung, had to work. You know what I mean? Like everybody had to work with each other in some way to say this is going to be an industry standard. So just because Belkin sells the cable, it's being used in a Dell device. Or Dell is selling a monitor that's being connected to an HP tower, CPU tower. So at the end of the day, that's a form of competition working with people that you otherwise would not have maybe wanted to work with. We really see it happening now in the auto industry around autonomous driving, around uh, AI and intelligence around everything that's going on with natural language processing, right? Commerce via voice and all that's happening in, in that space. And so making everything work together is a great way to, to define competition for people who aren't very familiar with it. But ultimately it, it has to do with either unlikely characters, you know, so Red Bull and GoPro, it's more of a partnership, right? Right. If you have Salesforce, you know, working with Google, you'd say, well, that's definitely a partnership, but competition as well, because they have word processing and we have Quip and that's kind of word, pro you know what I mean? And so you could say, well, why would we work with someone who sells something in our category? Well, because the customer is going to be using both of our technology and will want it to be seamless. So uh, it's really important for people to not make partnering decisions based on what they, who they think their competitor is, but Moreover, think about who is their customer and what does their customer want? Think USB, like think the USB. That's a great example because you have USB-C now coming out, which is a standard, but will change everything. But Apple actually has finally come into it rather than trying to develop their own version. And it's the first time that that's been reciprocal. So they, they, that's even a battle where they've decided not to go proprietary anymore. Yeah. And, and, and really, this is when I hear people say, oh, yeah, we would never work with them. You know, they're kind of a competitor going back to the very first question you asked me was one of the big mistakes people make is they benchmark their competitors. Yeah. They spend a lot of time and energy benchmarking their competitors. They don't spend that much time talking to their own customers. So they worry about what their competitors are doing much more so than they actually care about what their customers want and need from them. And so if you were spending that much time talking to and listening to the voice of your customer, you may make very different decisions. In this very conversation around competition or partnerships, if your customer said, God, I just wish you'd do this. And in your head, you're going, well, we have two choices. We're either going to completely stand up an entirely new product and everything that goes along with that, or we go partner with someone who does it. 
And the reason I keep pivoting back to Kylie Jenner, and, and I think people get a kick out of the fact that in a book, there is in the same chapter, a, com- a <laughs> two stories, Kylie Jenner and John Deere could not be any yeah. different, <laughs> but that was on purpose. Not a likely partnership. Not a likely like story to be told, I guess, you know, right? But the reason I tell that one is because she could have stood up her own R&D lab. She could have stood up her own supply chain and distribution facility. She could have stood up all these things. And instead, you know, with less than 15 employees, she's built almost a billion dollar business. So ultimately you say that's a lot of partnership. Yeah. <laughs> hands down. And or, you know, Nike finally opening a Nike branded store on Amazon. Or Best Buy and Amazon selling Fire TVs. Well, don't they compete? Or Amazon working with Kohl's to for return items for their customers. Or you know what I'm saying? Like that is all about if the customer finds it easier to do something in brick and mortar and I'm only online, how do I make that happen? If I'm only brick and mortar and I don't have, or my footprint in brick and mortar is declining, like who can I partner with to help me versus saying no way, unless it's in our own branded store, which is what many of these brands have done historically, they fought against the machine and they didn't win. Yeah. And you know, it, it touches back to what you said earlier, which this customer centric view of growth, which is instead of a company, a bunch of men and women sitting around a room saying, we got to grow, we got to grow coming in and saying, our customers are asking us for X. We know that people want what, you know, a growth strategy is actually built into demand and what people are asking for rather than this uh, sort of internal exercise of we want to hit 50% growth that has nothing to do with what their customers actually want or are looking for. Right, exactly. And when I get often asked, they'll go, well, there's two things. One, they'll say, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think, but I need to let you know about my business, what my products are. Like, I need you to know all about me before you tell me what you think we should do about how to grow. And my answer back is normally, I can appreciate that you think you're unique, but you're not really. If you're in a highly regulated industry, I got to give you that, right? But for all intent and purposes, you're not really that unique. And people look at me like, oh, you're like we sell. And I go, doesn't matter. I know who your customers are. I know what your customers are looking for. They now want a seamless, frictionless experience. They want knowledgeable people on the phone when they call in and they have a problem that has all their information right in front of them so they don't have to repeat themselves 10 times. I don't care if it's about a car, a refrigerator, or a mainframe computer. Yeah, Pick something. They want the same things. And now they're far more educated than they ever were before. They want information in real time across multiple devices. Does that sound like your customer? Sometimes they'll say, I don't know, like this, right? And so (laughs) I don't necessarily need to know what they're selling because I know enough about their customer. Now, do I know 100%? Absolutely not. But I know at least 80%. And that's much better than probably what they know at this moment. So I always start with the customer and work back in. And if I can get them to start to think that way, they start to make very different decisions on what and where they can grab and jump on their next growth engine. Yeah. And what's interesting in this, I think this goes to the next question. You know, one one of my favorite stories was, I think from 1980 to 2000, Southwest Airlines, which I don't know, might've been one of your examples, grew faster and made more profit than the entire airline industry Mm -hmm. in the US. And when someone asked Herb Kelleher, you know, what was your strategy? How did you do that? He said, culture. So, What role does culture play in in growth and sustainable growth? So that was my 10th path, pretty much. 
the 10th path in the book is called unconventional strategies. And when I first started working on it, I, I was really trying to find the next freemium idea, right? So that was kind of unconventional. Freemium was like, what? You're giving it away for how long? Like, what? And so freemium to me was unconventional. I was looking for what's the next freemium, right? Kind of in air quotes, what's the next freemium that I can drop into unconventional? I was really trying to figure out what is it? And then I was like, you know what? I think this is kind of purpose over profit. It's this new wave of value-based growth and doing what's right uh, for the communities people live in, for their employees. You know, the employees are only, the customers are only going to be as happy as the employees. Like, how do you start to really do much more around purpose than just profit? Especially if you're publicly traded, it gets a little tricky. But I even think that kind of quarterly hamster wheel of uh, what's the profit? What's the profit? What's the profit? Versus saying, well, hold on a second. Like, is it just better business? Costs might have gone up a little bit, but you've just removed, you know, six billion carbon tons from the atmosphere. Okay, like I'm okay with the cost going up a little bit, yeah. and not not being, you know, not okay with that. I think that 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 has a huge part of it, and people are joining companies for the cultures. And there's no, at least in my opinion, there's no coincidence that. You know, because of where I work, obviously at Salesforce, that you know we're one of the best places to work almost everywhere in the world. In whatever you know survey you look at, we're in the top couple of companies, uh, if not number one. And the same thing, we're one of the most innovative companies in the world and have been. And there's no coincidence there. Right. A values-driven company, people all know what what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, uh, and culture plays a big role in it. So it's really important that the only way you can do that is by knowing what is that value system, right? What is your culture? What do you want to be known for, for your employees? And how do you get them motivated and inspired to do amazing work every single day? And ultimately, the people that reap the benefit of that are your customers. Yeah. As I think you said, I think culture and innovation go hand in hand, particularly if you're looking, if you need the talent who's going to come in and, and have the ideas and, and drive the growth. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I like to usually end with this question, but I will, uh, I'll, I'll tweak it up a little bit for you. So what is a personal and professional growth mistake that you've learned the most from in your career? Uh, I'd say, so a friend of mine, uh, Naomi Simpson, who is uh, a shark on Shark Tank Australia, gave me this term, which I have now completely ripped off, but she calls it her non-strength. So she's got strengths instead of weakness, it's non-strength. So my lesson, <laughs> um, it, my non-strength and growth was 
to trust the process. I was just no patience whatsoever. And I didn't trust the process that I, I like my customers was expecting results much faster than the, just the natural breathing of an idea, a concept and something that was being launched. Like that if it doesn't return in a quarter or two, we got to pull the plug versus saying, it's just not going to return that fast. It's going to return in four quarters. And we just have to believe and trust the process that four quarters from now, it will look very different than it looks today. So I think trusting the process is a lesson that I always have to learn. And I try to help our customers and people who read the book, right? Understand that this is a process. And if in any path you decide to grow, uh, the statistics show it's anywhere from two to four years mm. to start to really see the results from a path you've decided to double down on, uh, whether it's launch into a new market, launch a new product, move into customer centricity, right? Try to get your hands around churn. Like it, it just takes time. And sometimes executives don't give it the time. So they kill it too fast. And sure enough, one or two quarters later, they have to do it again and start all over. So if you just remain vigilant to it and know that it will be very uncomfortable. It will not feel natural. And you just have to have the patience to make it work. So that's probably a lesson, a non-strength <laughs> that <laughs> that we all kind of need to lean into a little bit more. Um, the other one was a positive. Is that what you asked? No, it could be either. It was personal and professional. Okay. So that would be, that would be my professional. Um, personal, I'd say it's the same thing. I'm just not patient just as a yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> My grandfather used to tell me, uh, you know, I think starting at age, well, as long as I can remember, I don't know what age it was, that patience is a virtue. And at least once a day, I'll laugh in my head. I find myself being completely impatient. So that would be my personal one. You might not be patient, but you're self-aware. So, so that, I'm very self-aware, <laughs> right? At least, and, and I always say that, like, I, you know, I think that comes with maturity and time, but more than anything, it comes with uh, having people around you that you trust that will just tell you the truth. Yeah. Well, that, that is great wisdom. And Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us on Outperform today. It's really great hearing your perspectives for why context, combination, and sequence matter when it comes to a smart growth strategy for business. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Fun conversation. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Outperform podcast. We'll include links to Tiffany's site, her book, and anything else that we mentioned during the episode. And until next time, keep outperforming. Hello, Elevate podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and Tiny Habits expert and author B.J. Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions, and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, 
this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.